like the plaque on the Statue of Liberty says, give us your tired, your poor, mostly Christians, maybe one or two Indian guys with engineering degrees. Sounds about right. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Central Coast, 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. Of course, on the iTunes and the Stitcher and the TuneIn apps. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik five days a week. Glad you could join us. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around, swell fellow from bradblog.com. Glad to have you here with us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. Oh, boy, what a week. What a week it has been. Uh, we will uh, be speaking in a little bit here with uh, Ian Milheiser and uh, about the new Republican war on regulations. Uh, there's a lot going on. There has been, obviously, a lot going on in this country since the uh, attacks in Paris. But there's also sort of this uh, fetishization, if that's a word, uh, of of the uh, of, of those terror attacks, what we should do about them in this country, what we must do about them in this country, how we must abandon our American values uh, in order to uh, cower in fear or something like that. Uh, and in the meantime, there are actually uh, plans being made, things moving forward. There's an election coming up next year. Uh, policy uh, decisions are being either uh, made without, you know, much attention in the media. Uh, or they're not being made at all. And perhaps they should be. Uh, perhaps we should not be obsessed with, uh, you know, well, cowering in fear, as I say. In any event, uh, Ian Milheiser will be here to talk about he recently attended the Federalist Society's annual convention where so-called conservative agenda ideas are, are hatched before they play out in the public space, such as in our legislative bodies and uh, more uh, troubling in our courts, including the Supreme Court, where several Republican appointees are members of this uh, sort of radical right wing Federalist Society. So Ian Milheiser will be here to discuss his uh, disturbingly headlined article, The Little-Noticed Conservative Plan to Permanently Lock Democrats Out of Policymaking. Really? Yeah, really. He'll be here with us uh, shortly so that we can try and uh, notice that little-noticed plan amidst all the uh, foolish sturm and drong in this country in the wake of the, uh, the Paris terror attacks. 
In Mali, uh, extremists, Islamic extremists armed with guns and grenades stormed the Radisson Hotel in Mali's capital on Friday. Security forces swarmed in to free guests floor by floor. As evening fell on Friday, officials said that uh, there were no more hostages being held, but that at least 19 people had been killed including two attackers, U.S. and French Special Operations Forces assisted Malian troops in responding to the attacks by an unknown number of gunmen at this time. The shooting continued into the late afternoon, says AP, and a U.N. official said two attackers were dead. An extremist group led by former al-Qaeda commander Mukhtar Mukhtar Belmukhtar claimed responsibility for the siege at the Radisson Blue Hotel in the former French colony. Many in France saw it as a new assault on their country's interests a week after the Paris attacks. So there's that. Um, Meanwhile, back in this country, yesterday on this show, we we highlighted a, uh, a Missouri state senator by the name of Moon. Mike Moon, I think it was. He called for a special session of the Missouri legislature to, quote, put a stop to the potential Islamization of Missouri. Of course, that's ridiculous and that's not happening, but it hasn't stopped these people from cowering in fear. And then um, today we'll be happy to uh, move on down to Tennessee where a uh, GOP leader is now calling for, uh, this is amazing, calling to round up Syrian refugees. A top Tennessee Republican lawmaker believes the time has come for the National Guard to round up any Syrian refugees who have recently settled in the state and to stop any additional Syrian refugees from entering Tennessee. We need to activate the Tennessee National Guard and stop them from coming into the state by whatever means we can, said House GOP Caucus Chairman Glenn Casada, referencing the, uh, the refugees. So this is, again, this is not some fringe outlier extremist right winger. This is a guy who is the head. He's the House GOP Caucus Chairman in the legislature in the state of Tennessee. Casada was asked to elaborate on his proposal and whether Tennessee had the authority to detain refugees. He said, Tennessee is a sovereign state. If the federal government is forsaking the obligations to protect our citizens, we need to act, said Casada during a phone interview with the Tennessean on Tuesday. Tennessean goes on to point out that in fiscal year 2015, only 30 of the 1,601 refugees that settled in Tennessee came from Syria. That's according to the Tennessee Office for Refugees. So just 30, but they need to call out the Tennessee National Guard to, to round them up, send them home. Democratic Caucus Chairman Mike Stewart said, I think that, it, that that is one of the most extraordinarily misguided statements that I've heard made by a public official. He said, we need to approach this issue from a standpoint of strength and not fear. We should have great confidence in our military forces and in our law enforcement agencies to keep our citizens safe. We don't need to go off half cocked and start interfering in the defense policy of our country. But Casada, uh, along with uh, Rep. Rick Womick, another Republican and at least a few other lawmakers, believe it's time to call a special legislative session to look at doing something. We must do something. 
I believe we should take a long look at the entire refugee program and use any means necessary to stop refugees from entering Tennessee. Any means necessary to stop refugees. If they come from countries with ties to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and similar terrorist groups. So now, not just Syrian refugees, any refugees from anywhere, any of these war-torn nations where citizens are being killed and attacked and they face certain death from ISIS, don't let them come here. If the U.S. Supreme Court says the federal government cannot force states to expand their Medicaid roles, I'm not sure how the federal government believes it can legitimately force Tennessee to accept refugees from countries with known terrorists. You know, we don't have in this country, we don't have borders around the states. And so, you know, when these state governments uh, and all of these governors were saying, we're not going to let them in our state, you know, unless they want to start erecting... Uh, blockades at the borders on the highways uh yeah it doesn't matter what you people want in your state that's not how it works it works at the uh, at the federal level and of course at the federal level on thursday republicans and 47 democrats to their eternal shame voted in the u.s house to keep out syrian refugees Back to the Tennessean here. Those emotions are sending the legislative conversation in a dangerous direction, according to uh, Senate Democratic Caucus leader Jeff Yarbrough, uh, who ought to talk to his uh, Democratic colleagues, frankly, in the U.S. House. Yarbrough said, we're better than this. After Paris, it makes sense to fear the violence being exported by ISIS, but giving in to fear, closing the borders, abandoning our allies is un-American and ultimately will make our situation even more dangerous. Yarborough is correct. Senator Bill Ketron of uh, Murphy's Murfreesboro, Tennessee, said he's crafting legislation aimed at determining how much money refugees cost the state. Ah, we'll make the conservative argument of how much they cost. Okay, good. He said beyond the urgent public safety concerns, state governments must pay the tab for the refugee needs like health care, education and welfare programs. Currently, we do not collect data. We need to give us the data that we need to give us that information, Ketron said. The Tennessean, once again, well done, Tennessean. This is Dave uh, Butcher at the or Boucher at the uh, Tennessean said that this is not the first time Ketron has proposed legislation of this nature. Lawmakers have received data showing refugees account for far more revenue than expenses for Tennessee. That's right. In 2013, report from the State Fiscal Review Committee noted that it's hard to accurately convey the uh, uh, specific economic impact of refugees, but it estimated that refugees represented nearly $1.4 billion in state revenue. From 1990 to 2012, compared with at least $753 million spent by the state on refugees and their descendants during the same period. So to do the math very quickly for you there, um, let's see, that's about a billion dollars in income, in revenue overall to the state of Tennessee. Don't tell Republicans in the state of Tennessee, however. Matthew Iglesias on Twitter points out that it is striking how little impact the fact that the Paris attackers were neither Syrian nor refugees is having on the Syrian refugee debate. Well said, Matthew Iglesias. Now, of course, you may wish to laugh and ridicule, make fun and 
loathe all of these cowardly, un-American, xenophobic, racist, nativist, frightened, opportunistic, disinformed, obnoxious, embarrassing Congress members and state legislators who voted to block Syrian refugees fleeing war and terrorism in their home country, seeking to block them from coming here where they're seeking peace and safety and freedom in our nation. But remember, many of these same great American members of Congress were also the ones who were yelling and screaming and desperately trying and trying to warn us in advance about the about that U.S. Ebola epidemic that decimated our country just over a year ago. That was that was almost exactly a year ago, October 2014. And we were told, of course, that the uh, what the Obama administration was doing was not sufficient and that nobody should believe the experts and that we were going to be destroyed by this Ebola epidemic that, uh, oh, what happened to that one? It went away. So all of those same people who are wrong about that, again, we're supposed to uh, we're supposed to look to them now to be right about this. <laughs> And so, of course, we're looking to Donald Trump, who is now the front runner, clearly, both nationally and in New Hampshire. Uh, since uh, Ben Carson has begun to fade, he's now the uh, front runner, and he is uh, saying that, yes, absolutely, that's a quote, absolutely, we should register all Muslims in this country in a database. <laughs> On Thursday night, Trump told an NBC reporter that all American Muslims, quote, have to be required. That's a quote, have to be required to register in a database in the wake of the deadly uh, terror attacks in Paris. Uh, he said, I would certainly implement that. Absolutely, Trump said when he was asked about forcing registration of the 5 million to 12 million Muslims living in America. Though he backed the idea of registering Muslims in a federal database, the Washington Post points out that Trump has historically opposed the idea of a federal gun owner database that he's against. He's opposed database, that sort of database on the grounds that, quote, lawful gun owners will have their privacy invaded and will place information in the hands of government officials that could be easily abused. He shows, of course, no such fear in uh, requiring all Jews to register with the federal government. Oh, wait a minute. No, all Muslims to register with the federal government, that uh, Jews having to register with the federal government, that was a whole different thing, a whole different time, a whole different place. How'd that end up, by the way? The Washington Post asked Trump to uh, clarify why a database of gun sales would be an invasion of privacy and subject to ab abuse while those risks don't concern him when it comes to an index of Muslim Americans and migrants, he did not respond. But on Thursday, Trump was unable to say how his Muslim registry would be different from Nazi Germany. From the Nazi Germany policy of forcing Jews to register in a database. The New York Times reports that when asked how a system of registering Muslims would be carried out, whether, for instance, mosques would be where people could register. Mr. Trump said, oh, different places. You, you sign up at different places. But it's all about management. Our country has no management. Asked later as he signed autographs how such a database would be different from Jews having to register in Nazi Germany. Mr. Trump repeatedly said, you tell me, you tell me, until he stopped responding to the question at all. And it was amazing. You could see in that video, Desi Doy, and I don't know if you saw that video, but you could see that when he was asked that question, suddenly it occurred to him what he had said. Yeah. 
I think it was really clear that he suddenly backed off and was was considering his the wheels yeah, were wait, turning uh, in his head really did quickly. What? You could see him yeah. thinking about what what am I gonna how am I gonna get out of how this? How am I gonna and, get out of this soup? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, on Friday uh, morning, Jeb Bush uh, said that Trump's idea to register Muslims was quote just wrong. He accused his rival of quote manipulating people's angst and their fears. And when a Bush is accusing you of manipulating people's angst and their fears, boy, you must have gone off the rails, man. Uh, Bush said, that's not strength, that's weakness. Uh, yeah. Except, <laughs> except Jeb Bush also yeah. did back the idea of having a, uh, of only letting Christians. in Christian yeah. refugees, not Muslim re- right. refugees, and he was okay with that. You just, you could tell, you could tell. Un- unbelievable. Uh, I, and I, I've talked about this. I've talked about the gray zone over the past week, uh, what ISIS calls the gray zone and how dangerous it is, what's going on and how we are playing exactly into the hands of the very same people, uh, the very same terrorists that these uh, people you know, are, are, are claiming to be fighting against. They are playing into their hands. They are doing exactly what it was that Osama bin Laden wanted. And that ISIS wants now. Uh, and uh, Sally Steenland and uh, again, Ken Goody over at uh, Center for American Progress wrote about exactly that uh, on Thursday. And so and I've talked about it. But let me read it again here. Let me read what what they wrote. I haven't read what they wrote, but it's the same thing. The Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham or ISIS is pursuing a, str- a strategy explicitly designed to provoke hostility towards innocent Muslims in Western society in order to radicalize these communities and recruit them to their cause. Listening to the American political debate in the wake of the tragic terrorist attacks in Paris, that strategy may be working, they write. Islamophobic rants are both morally offensive and factually inaccurate and play right into the hands of our terrorist enemies. ISIS is not hiding its objectives. In its publications, they say, It talks of forcing the world into two camps by, quote, destroying the gray zone between itself and the forces aligned against it. For ISIS, the gray zone is inhabited by those who have yet to commit to one side in its clash of civilizations. In the February edition of ISIS's official magazine, Dabiq, An ISIS writer outlines a plan to, quote, compel the Crusaders, that's the West, to actively destroy the gray zone themselves, unquote, by generating anti-Muslim hysteria in the wake of terrorism. Attacks such as those in Paris are designed to get Western governments to alienate their Muslim populations and push them towards ISIS. Some conservatives appear happy to oblige. So there you go. There you hear it again. All right. I, I've got uh, much more on this and I want and we're going to get to Ian Milheiser shortly. Uh, but I want to get to uh, some of the way that uh, CNN, frankly, seems happy to oblige uh, and uh, some encouraging uh, statements, even from, well, at least one Republican uh, and even from Stephen Colbert straight ahead. Let's take a quick break and we will come back with more broadcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs>
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Trouble. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Ian Milheiser coming up uh, very shortly to talk about the uh, his troubling story, the little-noticed conservative plan to permanently lock Democrats out of policymaking. Uh, but uh, some more on uh, what's been going on over the past week in this country and what's been going on specifically in Congress. Uh, Elise Labatt over at CNN was covering this uh, shameful vote on Thursday to block the uh, Syri- uh, Syrian refugee program, which is just uh, amazing. In any event, she, she tweeted out, House passes a bill that could limit Syrian refugees. Statue of Liberty bows head in anguish. Now, that was a pretty mild uh, thing to tweet, frankly, about what has happened. I mean, I think we've we've spent the last, I don't know how many days, talking about this uh, effort to keep Syrians out despite the fact, in the wake of Paris, despite the fact that so far, no Syrians even identified with those attacks, much less uh, refugees. But uh, she was suspended for two weeks for saying that, for saying the Statue of Liberty bows head in anguish. By way of reminder, for those who don't remember, the Statue of Liberty, a gift from France, actually says on it, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's what it says on the Statue of Liberty. Now, uh, CNN uh, suspended her for making that, uh, that tweet which is absolutely amazing to me, given the fact that uh, some of their other uh, journalists, like Don Lemon, <laughs> the, who, the things that he has said, as Eric Wemple points out over at The Washington Post, uh, Lemon, after the protests in Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri, uh, said, uh, quote, in my estimation, there's been too much political correctness trying to appease protesters. He was not suspended for that. He said there was nothing peaceful about the Ferguson protests. He was not suspended for that. Huff Poe points out that uh, last week, while moderating a discussion with four women on the firing of New York Times executive e- uh, editor Jill Abramson, this is uh, from a while ago, Lemon said he didn't believe in equal pay for work, equal work in all circumstances. Lemon said he agreed with some criticisms of blacks by Fox News' Bill O'Reilly. Why is Don Lemon allowed to denigrate Ferguson protesters, oppose equal pay, endorse Bill O'Reilly's criticism of black youth, but Elise Labatt is not allowed to sympathize with Syrian refugees? I don't know. You tell me. Um, The policy, uh, apparently, is that uh, so long as he's not predictably partisan, according to CNN, uh, he can uh, he can say those sorts of things. I don't know that she was predictably partisan in this case. I talked to uh, Don Lemon. Actually, I, I had criticized Don Lemon back in uh, 2010, took CNN and him to task 
for this uh, discussion they had about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and this uh this graphic they had on this on the screen that shamefully said Assange journalist or terrorist I wrote about it at bradblog.com and after my critical coverage Don Lemon gave me a call he stood by all aspects of that even though there is no evidence to associate Assange with terrorism and if he was a terrorist that would make him a target of this country and many others for assassination he stood by that, uh, but however, an hour and a half discussion we had uh, on the phone, he would not allow me to uh, share any of his comments. He said they were all off the record. It's funny how journalists are the ones who seem to, uh, you know, ha have the most trouble talking to uh, journalists and going on the record themselves, even while they criticize others for not going on the record. Anyway, well, maybe we'll get into that in more uh, detail at, at another time. But also CNN, uh, CNN's Elise Labatt tweeted on Monday morning that President Barack Obama, when he was speaking at uh, the G20 in Turkey, she tweeted that he was, quote, whining about criticism instead of presenting ideas. And yet she didn't get suspended for that. She only got suspended we're talking about the Statue of Liberty uh, hanging its head in anguish. And, of course, CNN White House correspondent uh, Jim Acosta, right after the attacks, uh, said uh, to uh, President Obama, why can't we take out these bastards? He didn't get suspended for that either. Anyway, uh, they're all not absolutely insane. This is uh, Congressman, where are we here? Congressman uh, Steve Russell from Oklahoma, Republican from Steve, uh, from, uh, Republican from Oklahoma during the debate on whether or not to block Syrian refugees from coming into this country. I'm happy to say uh, his statements got it almost completely right. While I have tried to focus my comments on actions that we should take to eliminate ISIS, one action we should not take is to become like them. America is a lamp that lights the horizon of civilized and free mankind. Statue of Liberty cannot have a stiff arm. Her arm must continue to keep the torch burning brightly. But if we use our passions and our anger and fear, and we use that to snuff out her flame by xenophobic and knee-jerk policy, the enemy wins. We have played into their hands, period. Here are some Syrian refugee facts you may not know. Despite a long-established multi-layered system to vet and bring refugees into the United States, despite biometric and biographic screening, despite intelligence vetting with the National Counterterrorism Center, the FBI's Terrorist Screening Center, and the Departments of State, Defense, and Homeland Security, added to the fact that Syrian refugees receive additional screening to national security concerns, and most of them are women and children, coupled with the fact that a total of 1,900 Syrians have entered this country in the last four years, most of them women and children. Americans across the country now are calling on Lady Liberty to drop her torch and give the stiff arm with perhaps even another gesture. I want you to listen carefully to these statements by members of Congress in response to a refugee bill. Not an illegal immigration bill or permanent residents, but refugees, a refugee bill. Listen to these comments by members of Congress about people fleeing for their lives. 
Fighting immigration is the best vote-getting argument. The politician can beat his breast and proclaim his loyalty to America. He can tell the unemployed man that he's out of work because some alien has his job. End quote. Here's another one. Congress must protect the youth of America from this foreign invasion. End quote. And how about this one? American children have first claim to America's charity. End quote. There are many more, but these quotes were from 1939. The refugee bill was not for Muslim and Christian Syrians or Iraqi Muslims, Christians, and Yazidis. It was for German Jews. While it was true that Germany was indeed a threat, the refugees were not. They were 20,000 children. Not only did that bill of 1939 not pass, but that Congress, with the same speech and rhetoric that I've been hearing in recent days in this august chamber, Mr. Speaker, they passed hurdle after hurdle in 1939 to make it more difficult for refugees to enter. Good for him. That was Congressman Steve Russell, Republican from Oklahoma, uh, during the debate on whether or not to block refugees from Syria from coming into this country. He went on to say that back in 1939, we made it very difficult for those fleeing Nazi Germany to get in. And in fact, we did send many of them back to their deaths. So good for the congressman for those statements, for those words. And then he went on to vote in favor of the legislation to block those Syrian refugees anyway. So I guess we have to turn to the late night comedians to tell us what uh, we really ought to uh, be concerned about in this country. Here's Stephen Colbert on Thursday night on xenophobia, on ISIS, on Trump, on Jeb and the Statue of Liberty. Here's the deal. If you want to live in the seventh century, you don't get to be on TV. But after that senseless tragedy, the question of whether to let Syrian refugees into this country has become the new political issue, completely overshadowing the old political issue, whether to let Mexicans into this country. <laughs> it's all anybody in Washington on the campaign trail or on the TV box is talking about. So let's wander blindly onto the news tarmac and get sucked into one of the fear turbines. <laughs> This afternoon, Congress passed a new bill that will require the nation's top security officials to personally certify that each refugee admitted from Iraq or Syria is not a threat. It's called the American Security Against Foreign Enemies Act, or ASAFEA. <laughs> because under the law, no one with a name like that will be allowed in the country. <laughs> Besides, presidential... Besides presidential candidate and man whose hair is a refugee from his scalp, <laughs> Donald Trump isn't even sure they'd want to live here. The weather. A friend of mine lives in Minnesota, and he calls me and says, can you imagine it's 130 degrees in Syria, and now they want to send some up to Minnesota where it's 30 degrees. But these people are going to be very, very unhappy. It's cold and beautiful, but it's cold. You keep them in Syria, the weather's the same. Yeah, it's a tough call for the refugees. I mean, do I want to stay in a war zone where my family faces almost certain death, or do I want to go somewhere where I have to put on a jacket before I go to the mall? <laughs> I mean, you're walking around carrying your coat, you get all sweaty, you go outside, you forget to put it on, then you get a cold. I'll take my chances with ISIS. <laughs> and this kind of selective immigration is nothing new. Like the plaque on the Statue of Liberty says, 
Give us your tired, your poor, mostly Christians, maybe one or two Indian guys with engineering degrees. And... And when Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz say only let in Christians, it's just because they don't know if they can trust Syrian Muslims, but they do know they can relate to your average Syrian Christians. Jeb Bush has the answer. What does the focus on Christian families actually look like? Is that going to... Well, you you're a Christian. I mean, you can prove you're a Christian. It's... The, oh. I think you can prove it. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I mean... If you want to know if somebody is Christian, just ask them to complete this sentence. Jesus said, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you... And if they don't say, welcomed me in, they are either a terrorist or they are running for president. Thank you, Stephen Colbert. A quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast, and uh, Ian Milheiser will be joining us. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com trying desperately to uh, to keep our eyes on things that matter today, even with uh, so much that's going on around the world, so much that's very troubling going on around the world. But policy matters continue here in the U.S., whether we are talking about them or not, whether they're showing up on our on our news reports right now. Uh, we are looking not just at an election year ahead, not just a horse race, but uh, a horse race that will have very serious consequences. And frankly, serious consequences no matter how it ends up playing out. Uh, we've talked on this show for a long time about how gerrymandering and voter suppression and so forth has made it very difficult for Democrats to regain control of the uh, of the U.S. House. And that will likely be the case again next year as uh, even if they win the popular vote, it, Congress will most likely not end up with a Democratic majority. We've seen this before. I think it was in uh, 2012. Far more Americans voted for Democrats to go to the Congress, and yet Republicans held on to the majority because of the way they have uh, uh, gerrymandered those, uh, those congressional districts. In the meantime... A group named the Federalist Society, a rather powerful conservative organization that uh, we'll, we'll explain in detail exactly who these guys are in a moment, recently held its annual meeting where, as Ian Milheiser writes at Think Progress, their disturbing proposals this year, quote, would take a system that has already been rigged by factors such as voter suppression laws and gerrymandering and rig it even more so that Democrats cannot make policy even when they do earn the mandate of the people. Now, these proposals that uh, were coming up this year at the Federalist Society that we'll talk about in a moment have to do uh, a lot with not only undoing certain regulations, federal regulations, but also making it nearly impossible for the White House no matter who's in charge, I suppose, but certainly if Democrats are in charge, uh, to create any new ones. And if you don't think that's disturbing, I will remind you what Jeb Bush had to say at uh, at a recent GOP debate when he was asked which of the Obama administration's uh, regulations he would like to roll back. On the regulatory side, I think we need to repeal every rule that Barack Obama has in terms of work in progress. 
every one of them, and start over. For those that are already in existence, the regulation of the Internet, uh, we have to start over, but we ought to do that. The Clean Power Act, we ought to repeal that and, and start over on that. The Waters of the United States Act, which is going to be devastating for agriculture and many industries, we should repeal that. We should repeal the rules because the economic costs of this far exceed the social benefit. And if we're serious about being serious about high growth, then we have to recognize that small businesses right now, more of them are closing than, than, are, than are being set up. Now, Jeb Bush, of course, wasn't the only one who was talking about repealing uh, rules. Uh, a number of the candidates were actually referring to rules made by uh, the White House, actually made by the executive branch agencies, uh, as things they could repeal, as if they were laws. It doesn't exactly work that way. But the point being... They don't like the regulations. They've already stopped, uh, uh, you know, new laws of any type from being able to go through. Now they're going into the executive uh, rulemaking that is carried out by federal agencies uh, as they try to implement the laws that have been passed by Congress. Uh, anyway, here to talk about all of this and the disturbing new proposals Coming out of the Federalist Society's annual convention is our friend Ian Milheiser, a constitutional law expert and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and uh, the editor of Think Progress Justice. His writings have appeared in legal and mainstream publications from coast to coast, including The New York Times, L.A. Times, U.S. News and World Report, Slate, The Guardian, American Prospect, The Yale Law and Policy Review, and The Duke Law Journal. His first book is Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted, which I believe is now available available for purchase. Uh, hey, Ian Milheiser, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Good to be back. Thanks so much. And, and I just want to make sure that book, Injustices, is now uh, published, is now available for purchase, right? It is indeed. Yeah, no, please, you know, go get it on Amazon. Go get it at, uh, you know, your local bookstore. Um, I, you know, you hear all about the terrible things that the Supreme Court has done to this country. Well, well done. It is uh, Black Friday coming up after all. It sounds like it would make a fine Christmas gift for one and all. Okay. Uh, you write at, uh, at Think Progress uh, that, uh, here's the headline, The little-noticed conservative plan to permanently lock Democrats out of policymaking. Wow, quite a headline. Caught my yeah. eye, at least. Uh, that sounds troubling. I want to discuss that in a moment. But first, to help us understand all of this, what exactly, Ian, is the Federalist Society and why should we care what they're up to and what they're talking about at their annual conventions that uh, I understand you, you attended recently? Yeah, so the Federalist Society is kind of an alternative bar association for conservative lawyers. So... Conservative attorneys get together, some of them very powerful. This includes three sitting Supreme Court justices who are members of the society. This includes a number of senators and members, other members of Congress. This includes you know, a ton of judges. Mm -hmm. So they, they get together, and often this conference they throw every year is when they then speak to their membership and tell them, here are the ideas that our conservative legal community has come up with for how we want to try to use whatever branch of government will listen to us to get our policies enacted. Hmm. Now, it, this year... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, now, yeah. isn't that the very definition of... Uh, you know, activist uh, courts, activist judges. In other words, they're not, <clears throat> they're not saying, uh, you know, each, uh, you know, each case shall be determined by the law. Rather, they are saying, hey, how can we use these courts 
to 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 make law and to change law is isn't that what's going on and isn't that exactly what these uh, republicans actually pretend to decry uh when uh, courts make decisions they don't like well, yeah, there's no question that they take a by any means necessary approach to policy making you, you know if they if they can get something through congress and get the president to sign it they'll do it that way and if uh-huh. that won't work they'll try to pass something through the regulatory process that, that won't work try to get a state to do it. If that won't work, they'll sue and try to get the court to do it. I, I mean, these are folks who are very determined to implement a very conservative agenda. Many of them are extraordinarily skilled and talented lawyers, and they know how to manipulate the levers of power to get the results that they want. And you mentioned that there are three Supreme Court justices now uh, on the court, our uh, our legal analyst at uh, Bradblog, Ernie Canning, has written about these guys for years. The the Federalists on the court, he describes them as radical in, radicals in robes, and he has uh, warned ominously about them. Is that is that a an accurate description as as you see it? And how closely should uh, uh, membership in the group uh, in the Federalist Society, you know, for these uh, judges, for these federally appointed judges? Uh, how how closely should that be seen as a sign on how they might decide cases? Are they, in other words, are they really uh, doing the bidding of the Federalist Society when these uh, th- these members get appointed to the to the bench? I mean, I can only speculate as to you know to what extent they are being influenced by by, by what they hear at, at the Federalist Society as opposed to just they already hold these views already. Uh-huh. But, you know, the three justices we're talking about here, Justice Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, you know, the example that just makes me question how they understand their role as a judge is there was a case just last term, King v. Burwell, that tried to take out the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. It was based on the theory that much of the text of the Affordable Care Act doesn't count and we should just read one sentence to the exclusion of everything else in the law, including provisions of the law that define the words in that sentence. Now, no one, no one, including Justice Scalia in his own writing, has said that that's an appropriate way to read a law, and yet those three justices, over the objections of the other six members of the court, wanted to dismantle in fact, worse than dismantle much of the Affordable Care Act to transform it into a weapon that would uh, that would destroy a lot of states' health insurance mm-hmm. markets. Um, and they did it based on this legal theory that imports with no legitimate notion of how statutes should be read that had existed prior to this case. And that legal theory came out of the Federalist Society? It did indeed, yeah. It came out, I, I mean, it, it was certainly popularized. Mm-hmm. within the Federalist Society. So it was, um, you know, a conservative lawyer who, you know, who was actually very obscure. He was a partner in some law firm somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, came up with this idea, and it was incubated in conservative think tanks, and it was popularized through the Federalist Society, and it was spread throughout the um, conservative legal community through the Federalist Society, and one of its the biggest evangelist for this theory was a Federalist Society member, so they are very involved in, uh, you know, spreading the gospel of whatever it is that um, conservative lawyers think they can do in order to move the law in a more conservative direction. You write that past convention speakers offered proposals as ambitious as eliminating anti-discrimination law, 
Uh, well, we saw that uh, recently down in uh, down in Houston, eliminating the minimum wage, declaring much of the 20th century unconstitutional. Uh, and this year's convention, uh, you say, also uh, talked about ideas such as eliminating unions and protecting anti-gay uh, discrimination. Uh, but you say that there was one topic that came up over and over again and, uh, so much that you, uh, what'd you say, you, you, uh, this year's convention schedule was planned, it, it appeared to be planned by Captain Ahab with the <laughs> Obama administration's regulations playing the role of Moby Dick. Uh, what is that about? What, so what is this attack on regulations that they were talking about and, and how, as you described, would this permanently lock Democrats out of policymaking? Sure. So, I mean, there are a ton of federal laws that delegate the power to determine the details of how that law will be implemented to a federal agency. So, like, you know, think of the, the, the Federal Clean Air Act. Right. You know, Congress can't just pass a law saying pollution is banned and, and be done with it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very particular determinations that require expertise that has to be made. You have to determine which pollutants are actually likely to harm people's health. Mm-hmm. You have to determine what the sources of those pollutants are. You have to determine you know, what methods of regulating those, those, those sources make, make sense. And, you know, these are things that require a great deal of expertise. So we have an entire agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, that possesses expertise in that space, and they come up with the details of these rules. So rather than... So, 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 okay. so, so, so rather, for example, uh, rather than in the law itself, in the, the Clean Air Act itself, rather than go through and list, uh, you, you know, what pollutants need to be get, uh, done away with or how much of that pollutant is a worry, they basically say that this Clean Air Act uh, has the EPA, instructs the EPA to come up with a list of these pollutants and take action to, to stop them. And then it leaves that rulemaking to the EPA itself, rather than having it in legislation, uh, in the actual yeah, Clean I mean, Air Act? It, it has a little more guidance than that, but uh-huh. that's the basic idea. Okay. I mean, the, the basic idea is that, you know, we might discover tomorrow that some ordinary chemical that's been in our car exhaust for 50 years is actually very, very dangerous, and we did just didn't realize it before. Right. And so we want, you, you know, the EPA to be nimble, and be able to decide, oh, like, you know, we have new information, we have new science, and we want to regulate our car, our exhaust tubes mm-hmm. now so that chemical is no longer a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we might also discover that there's a cheaper and more efficient way to regulate emissions. We might discover that a chemical that we previously believed to be very harmful is actually not as harmful as, as we want it to be, mm-hmm. and so it makes sense to um, deregulate in that. So the, and they can and, the EPA can do that on their own rather than having to wait for the entire process to go through to make a new law in Cong in both houses of Congress signed it by the White House the EPA is charged with making those decisions and uh, similarly with uh, you 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 cite the Affordable Care Act Obamacare is another right. example yeah well, yeah that's right I mean much of the Affordable Care Act your your health plan if you have an employer provided health plan it has to cover certain preventative services and much of the details of which services have to be covered are determined by the Department of Health and Human Services, because Congress has delegated that power to them. Okay, and that is now what this Federalist Society uh, says we have to do away with. It's, it's not enough that we've made it impossible, uh, by and large, to pass any new laws with a, uh, with a broken Congress, but now we're going to stop federal agencies 
uh, take away the rulemaking power from these federal agencies? Yeah, I mean, they have various ideas. You know, one of them is to have no, to have no regulation that's allowed to go into effect unless Congress affirmatively approves it within 70 days. And given the fact that our Congress can't even figure out how to fund the government, that's unlikely to happen very, very often at all. Um, you know, they have various theories for, like, declaring all these regulations unconstitutional, for eliminating the um, amount of deference that the judiciary is supposed to give to the agencies. And so they, they have all sorts of different details to their proposals, but the basic idea is to shut down the agency's power to regulate. And they want to do that for, for two reasons. I mean, one is that you know, a lot of these folks don't much like the EPA, they don't much like the Affordable Care Act, so they'd be happy to see them gone. Right. Um, but the other reason, you know, it goes to something you said in your introduction, which is that because our system is, you know, between gerrymandering and so many other factors, it's so difficult for Democrats to take the House. If they can prevent the agencies from regulating, then that means that while Democrats might be able to take the presidency, they won't be able to do anything with it when they have it. And it effectively shuts the Democratic Party out of the policymaking process even when they win the presidential election. So, because right now, for example, Barack Obama has said, well, and it took him too many years to uh, do, to do this, in my opinion, but uh, he has said, look, if I can't get the Congress to, uh, to pass these laws, immigration uh, and, right. and uh, climate and so forth, then I will take action on my own. And that's exactly what he's talking about, right? Executive agencies... Uh, and and their rulemaking power, and that's now now that they've broken Congress, uh, these Republicans or at least these folks in the Federalist Society are now trying to keep the president from being able to even do that, even change right. federal it, rules. Right, and it's important to keep in mind that you know for the most part the reason why the president's able to act. I mean, there are a few areas where the president has power, regardless of what Congress has done. Mm -hmm. But for the most part. The reason why the president or the administration is able to take actions like health care or, or the environment is because Congress has already passed the law. So Congress passed the Clean Air Act, and the Clean Air Act already gives Obama and already gives the Obama administration a fair amount of ability to regulate emissions and try to fight things like global warming. Now, you know, Republicans may not like that fact, mm -hmm. but their remedy is they have to repeal that law. You, you, you know, what, what, if they try to strip the president of his ability uh -huh. um, to regulate, you know, using the powers that he is giving, um, what they're effects what they're effectively doing is crossing out a law that has already been passed, and you know that isn't something that you know should be doable without another act of Congress. And and yet this is not, uh, you know, it would be nice to say, oh, this is just a bunch of, uh, you know, sort of extremist right wingers. None of this is actually going to happen. None of this is going to come to pass. But you've got uh, I think it was Carly Fiorina, for example, who in, in the recent GOP debates, she cited the Reigns Act as something that we need to pass. And so this is not just some, uh, you know, extremist. Uh, you know, a fringe group. Uh, this is, you know, coming up in the presidential debate, Carly Fiorina saying, let's pass the Reigns Act. What, what is the Reigns Act? And, and uh, how would that effectively uh, result in a massive shift in power from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, as you write, Ian Milheiser? 
Yeah, so the, the RAINS Act is the legislative version of this anti-regulatory agenda. That's the bill that says that many regulations automatic, or like they, they don't go into effect at all, actually, unless Congress affirmatively votes them off within 70 days. Um, so that's the legislative version of, the, of this broader agenda. But, I mean, they don't actually even need to pass a bill if they, uh, if they use other laws of power. I mean, the, you know, the, the big scary is that there are four Supreme Court justices who are likely to retire in the next five or six years. Mm-hmm. So if the next president gets to replace four justices, there's going to be a massive shift in the law. If that next president appoints four, you know, four very conservative justices, four justices of the law in the vein of Justice Samuel Alito, uh-huh. then whatever agenda the Federalist Society wants to be able to enact in this space, they're probably just going to be able to enact it in the court. And so the fear would be, and I think this comes to the uh, what you do, what, what you write about as the Chevron doctrine, but uh, the the fear would be that the court basically comes in and says, well, yes, they passed Congress passed that law, but they didn't say this specific thing or that specific thing, and therefore we are going to uh, d- we are going to decide that their the rulemaking power of this federal agency is no longer valid. They don't have the right, the ability to lock this this right. rule in as law because Congress didn't specifically spell it out. A- am I understanding that yeah. correctly? Yeah, I mean, some of these folks want to declare the, basically declare, declare the Clean Air Act unconstitutional. They want to say that it is illegal, it is unconstitutional for Congress to make the kind of delegation that it made in the Clean Air Act, which would make environmental policy nearly impossible. You know, it, it would be that every time there's a new scientific development in this, you know, field where there's vastly, you know, there's a great deal mm-hmm. of dynamicism in the science, um, every time there's a new scientific development, if we want to react to it, we have to get a new bill through Congress and, you know, get a new bill through a Congress that can't even decide to raise the debt ceiling. Um, so, you know, that's the, you know, probably the worst case scenario is that they try to permanently hobble the federal, uh, not just the federal rulemaking process, the federal lawmaking process, um, by making laws like the Clean Air Act impossible. And and we're talking about thousands and thousands of of, of rules and regulations, uh, large and small, that are decided by these uh, by these federal agencies. Uh, and of course, Republicans complain, oh, there's too many rules and regulations and so forth. So this is a way to do away with that and to basically keep the federal government, frankly, from being able to do anything. Right now, Ian Milheiser, uh, they, they rely on, on uh, the courts uh, tend to rely on what's called the Chevron Doctrine. What exactly is the Chevron Doctrine? Yeah, so Chevron was a decision from the 1980s which just said that um, generally courts owe a great deal of deference to agencies when they engage in the rulemaking process. So, you, you know, the, the agencies have a great deal of expertise in their particular issue mm-hmm. space. The courts typically do not. I mean, you know, what what does Sam Alito know about environmental policy? Next right. to nothing. Um, and so we would rather have a, uh, you know, we would rather the experts that Congress gave this role to making these decisions than nine people with black robes and, and law degrees. So they tend um, to def- you know, that, they, t- they have a deference to the, if there's a, a question about a, a specific rule, if the agency 
the federal agency in question is supporting it, is coming to court and saying, yes, here's why we need this. Uh, here's the scientific basis for it, it you know, in the case of uh, uh, the EPA, for example. Then they tend to defer to that agency. That federal agency tends to have power over what any particular court might say. Yeah, I mean, it's generally it's deference to the agency's interpretation of the law. So uh-huh. if the law is ambiguous, if it's unclear when, like, the law says, for example, that, you know, the EPA has the power to regulate pollution, mm-hmm. that, like, a particular kind of admission is in, indeed qualifies as, as, as a pollutant, um, the agency will, or the court will typically defer to the agency in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a big reason for this is because the EPA is just going to know more about what about pollution. Yeah, of course. And yet uh, even that uh, needs to be undermined, it seems, by this group. Uh, How how worried uh, should we be? We've got just a minute or so here, Ian. How worried should we be about uh, what we hear, what you heard, uh, you know, at these conferences as far as, you know, how often do these ideas make their way from these annual conferences that really few in the corporate media pay attention to? from those conferences uh, to actual uh, policy, whether it be on the courts or, or in the legislative bodies around the country? Well, well, here's the thing. Like, my entire life, we've had, a, we've had an election every two years. We have a presidential election every four years. And what that meant is that if you won the presidential election, you got some power to govern. And then four years later, if people didn't like what you did, they had the opportunity to change the nation's course. And... What groups like the Federalist Society are pushing, and there are a lot of folks in the conservative community who are behind this agenda, is they're looking for ways to change the fact that elections matter, to make it so that they can permanently put in place structures, whether it's declaring things unconstitutional, whether it's changing the balance of power between the various uh, branches of government. They're looking to permanently put in place structures to make sure that only conservative uh, policies can go into effect. All very troubling, uh, as it is every time you show up on this program, Ian. Uh, the uh, the little-noticed conservative plan to permanently lock Democrats out of policymaking. Check it out at, uh, at thinkprogress.org, and as always, uh, you can and should follow Ian's work over there at uh, at Climate Justice. Go to thinkprogress.org for more, or follow him on the Twitters at I milheiser.com or even better yet for christmas uh, make ian's holiday by going out and buying his new book injustices the supreme court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted ian thanks as ever for joining us and uh and have a have a happy holiday all right thanks so much i'll talk to you later Okay, only time to uh, offer a quick thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and, of course, to Ian Milheiser. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it at bradblog.com, and you can uh, yell at me about it at uh, on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. All right, we will see you soon. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey,